0: All right, well, we are going to continue in our teaching series called Move. We are looking at Christianity not as a religion, but as a movement. And if we are to adhere to Christianity, then that means that we are to move. And and we want to move. Jesus began this movement by calling a group of men to follow him. And then when the time of his earthly ministry was done, he told them to go and replicate and it's impossible to follow and then to go without moving. They both require moving. And so we want to encourage movements. And, and what is the, the engine? What is the vehicle that is driving that movement? It's discipleship. And so we've been looking at discipleship. What is it? What does it look like? How do we accomplish it? And our definition of discipleship is this. It is the process of becoming more and more like Jesus in every way. The process, it's a process. We're never finished until the day we stand before Jesus. Then we'll be finished. But as long as we're in this life, we're in the process. And it's a continuing journey that we would become more and more like Jesus. And so we've defined discipleship. We looked at what Jesus meant when he talked about discipleship. We looked at the things that stop movements, that that stop us from moving forward in the church. Last week, we looked at moving in community, and we talked about uh, the importance of community. We looked at biblically that God calls us to be in community together. He calls us to gather in large group community, and he calls us to gather in small group community group community life and how discipleship would begin to happen in that small group community life we want all of our small groups to function under the heading of belong groups and within that there's going to be tons of freedom to do different types of groups different models different demographics but all of us moving together in alignment because we know that those groups are accomplishing the same purpose so if you missed the message last week you can listen to it on our website those of you that that took those applications last Sunday and you prayed, God, am I supposed to facilitate a belong group? If God said yes, then I want you to fill out that application. Don't be in rebellion. Don't say no to God. Fill out that application. Turn it in by the first Sunday of December so that we can launch all of these new belong groups in January. If you weren't here last week, you can go to our welcome center, which, by the way... Did you notice our brand new welcome center back there? Come on. Thank you to Sign Art for making the sign and then a huge thank you to Frank Pulano who built that entire kiosk from scratch. That thing went from raw wood to to that. In Frank's hand, so so be sure to tell Frank how much we say thank you. But go back to the Welcome Center. We've got Belong Group applications back there. You can read about what the Belong Groups are, and you can pray about, should I start a Belong Group? So today, we're going to talk about moving in unity. So last week, we talked about community. Now I want to talk about moving in unity. And to talk about this, I want you to picture something with me. Now... I'm not advocating that we actually do this. I don't want animal rights groups coming after me, okay? I just want you to imagine if this were to happen. What if we were to take six feral cats, and I'm pretty sure right here on our church property we could find six feral cats. What if we were to take six feral cats and we use some string to tie all six of them together by their tails? And then we just set them loose in the parking lots. What do you suppose that would look like? I could just imagine six cats all trying to shoot off in different directions. And they're all pulling against each other. And maybe the biggest, strongest cat makes a little bit of progress this way. But then a couple of other cats team up together and pull a little bit this way. And then finally, when they get frustrated enough, They're pulling against each other. Then they're just going to turn on each other, right? And cats are vicious. I hear them in the jungle at night out my window when they start fighting each other. And so they turn on each other, and now fur is flying, and cats are scratching each other. And what we have is a ball of chaos in the middle of our parking lots. But that ball is not moving anywhere. And I want you to understand that picture because the same thing can happen in the church. We've got one group of people that says, I believe church should be done this way, so I'm going to pull this way. And another group says, I think church should be done this way, so I'm going to pull this way. And we've got another group that says, well, this is how we've always done it, so I'm going to pull this way. And we're pulling in different directions And maybe the strongest, most influential group makes a little bit of headway this way. But then that just means a couple of other groups need to band together so they can pull a little bit stronger this way. And then finally, when everybody gets tired of pulling, that's when they start to turn on each other. And then, whoo, the the fur starts to fly in church. And it gets ugly. And now we're backbiting and gossiping. And now we're being passive aggressive and... But the same thing results out of all of it. We're not moving anywhere. And so I want to talk to you guys about unity today. I want to talk about pulling in the same direction. And so when I talk about unity, I'm not talking about us being friendly and liking each other. We're really good at that. We've got amazing community here and and great relationships, and we're great at being friendly. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about pulling in the same direction, moving in the same direction. So here's what I would like to do today. I'd like to look at the importance of unity as Jesus shared it. I'd like to look at the importance of unity as Paul shared it. And then I want to look at a couple of specific examples of how a lack of unity stops movement. And then we're going to finish today by each one of us challenging our own hearts. Is there some way, That I'm causing disunity. Is there some way that I am pulling in a different direction? And what would God call me to do today to begin to move in the same direction? So that's the journey that we're going to go on. Let's see what happens. Let's go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is known as the priestly prayer of Jesus. So what's happening here is Jesus just had his last supper with his, his 12 core followers. One of those 12 took off in the middle of dinner to go betray him. So now he's got 11 guys with him. And he just had his last supper. And now, just before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to get arrested and eventually led to crucifixion, he prays this closing prayer with his disciples. And so it's known as the priestly prayer of Jesus. It's a powerful prayer. He touches on a ton of different subjects. But I want to focus in on four verses where his prayer deals specifically with the importance of unity. So we're going to go John chapter 17 and we're going to start reading from verse 20. This is all Jesus praying. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus knew how to pray, huh? Let's break this down. Verse 20. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He's referring to the 11 guys that are sitting with him as he's praying. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word. In this simple phrase of prayer, Jesus is reinforcing the mandates for replication through discipleship. And thank goodness that these 11 men followed through on his prayer because the whole reason that we're in church today, that we get to know the Savior today, is because those men replicated what Jesus did in them into a new group. And that new group passed it down to another generation and another generation until eventually it's been passed to us. Jesus mandated replication through discipleship. He mandated that these 11 men would go out and share everything that Jesus had done, and through their word the gospel would be passed down from generation to generation. So our first thought on unity is this: is that our unity as a church is built around fulfilling the great commission? Our unity as a church is built around fulfilling the Great Commission. Listen, when we are together and we are passionate that we are fulfilling Jesus' mandate, he told us to go and make disciples. He told us to baptize them and to teach them how to obey the Word of God. He told us to bring them together and then to replicate it over and over again. When we are together doing that, there's unity There's not time for interpersonal conflict. There's not time for gossip. There's not time for backbiting because we're all focused on fulfilling the Great Commission. When we're not focused on that, we leave a lot of room for disunity. Verse 21, Jesus said that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The first key is this. It's our unity as a church is what witnesses to the world that Jesus truly is the Savior. He says that when we are in as much unity as the Trinity is in unity, then the world will know that Jesus was real. The world will know that he was truly God in the flesh and that he came to save us. Think about that as closely knit as Jesus is with the Father. And if you think about the Trinity, we got God the Father, we've got Jesus, we've got the Holy Spirit. All one God, all in perfect unity, all operating in complete oneness, yet three distinct personalities to fulfill the, the operation of the Godhead. But complete oneness. And Jesus says, I want you guys to be in complete oneness with us just as much as we are with each other. Jesus pictured a church whose unity was so powerful that they could be, it could be said that they were as close together as the Trinity, as close together as Jesus is with the Father, that we would be that close together. And, and what that says to me is that our unity is based on us being in alignment with what God is doing. When we are in perfect alignment with what God is doing, then we are going to move in unity together. How do we know what God is doing? We listen. And when he tells us, we do it. And so the board of this church, the elders, we are praying and saying, God, what are you doing? And when we hear what God says, then we move the church in that direction. The executive staff, we're praying, God, what are you doing? And when he speaks, we want to move the church in that direction because if we are partnered with what God is doing right now, we're going to be in unity. And the world will know that Jesus is the Savior. Verse 22, Jesus said, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. So Jesus says, The glory that the Father gave to Jesus, Jesus says, I am giving that to my disciples. So that means that our unity as a church comes from receiving the glory of Christ. So that leads us to a question. What is the glory of Christ? What was Jesus talking about when he said, the glory that you've given me, Father, I've passed on to them? And the answer is, We don't exactly know for sure what Jesus was talking about when he said the glory. We could summarize that he was most likely talking about the resurrection because it was the resurrection when Jesus walked out of the grave that glorified him and confirmed that he was God in the flesh. And so Jesus is saying the same resurrection power that you put upon me, I am putting upon the church. He could be talking about the power of the Holy Spirit, the same power of the Holy Spirit that worked through Jesus as he performed the miraculous. He's putting that on the church. We don't know exactly what Jesus was talking about, but we can summarize that it was probably all of that together. The glory that God put on Jesus, Jesus puts it on the church and he says, if we would receive the glory of Jesus, then we would operate in unity. If we could come together in commonality around the core things that we agree on, there might be some outer things about doctrine and theology that people have different ideas, but when we talk about the core things, that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he died for us as the perfect sacrifice for our sins, that he rose from the dead victorious over death so that we could have the same resurrection life in our spirits, That we believe that the Holy Spirit fills us and empowers us to do the work of the kingdom of God. That we believe that we can walk under the covering of the blood of Jesus, knowing that we are secure in God. When we come together on those core things and we move together in that, there is unity. And then finally, verse 23, I like this. When I read verse 23... I read a chronological look at how unity affects discipleship. And I like lists. I like things fitting in order. I like logical thinking. And so this really jumped out at me. Verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. So how does this work? Well, first, we receive Jesus jesus said i in them so we receive jesus we make a decision that we're going to surrender our lives and that jesus is going to be lord of our lives and we're going to follow him as disciples of jesus first we receive jesus then it says that you may be perfected in unity that means that unity has to come first So first we receive Jesus and then we come into alignment together. As we receive Christ, we join the church and we come into alignment with the direction that the church is moving. What happens when we're in unity? It says we're perfected. Now, When you read perfected in the New Testament, it doesn't mean perfection like your behavior is perfect and your attitude is perfect and everything about you is perfect. That's not what it means. That's not a realistic standard for any of us to reach. So any time in the New Testament when you read the word perfected, in your mind, I want you to be thinking maturity because that's what the Greek word actually means. So, So when... Jesus said that we would be perfected in unity. When James says that uh, tribulations perfect us, when Paul says, I'm trying to present everybody perfect before Jesus, what they're talking about is maturity. I'm trying to present mature disciples before Jesus. Tribulations are going to mature you in your faith. Jesus says that when we are in unity, that is when spiritual maturity happens. What is that? That's discipleship. So first we receive Jesus, then we come into alignment together, then discipleship happens. Discipleship happens when we're moving in unity. Not before. Then discipleship happens. We grow in maturity. And then finally he says, so that the world may know that you sent me. So then the world knows that God showed his love by sending Jesus. That's evangelism. So first we come to Jesus, then we come into unity as a church, and then we grow in discipleship, and then evangelism happens. See, a lot of times we think, you know what, we're not reaching enough people for Jesus, so we need to do more evangelism. I say, no, we're not reaching enough people for Jesus, so first we need to build some unity, and then we need to start discipling the people we have, and then evangelism will happen. This is the chronology of unity. Let's look at what Paul has to say. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I've said this many times before about the book of 1 Corinthians, but the entire book is basically one long rebuke. It is just Paul taking one topic after another and rebuking the church because they were doing it wrong. Now, there's a lot of great theology in Corinthians, but all of that theology comes out of Paul's need to correct what the church was doing. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the thing that Paul is correcting is division. It's disunity. It's factionalism. It was the church, people in the church breaking up into different factions. So let's start reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Start reading from verse 10. Paul writes, now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers, by Chloe's people, whoever's Chloe's people are, they ratted them out, that there are no quarrels, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So we had this church that was breaking up into factions based on which teacher they liked best. Oh, well, I'm a Paul guy. I like Paul's teaching, so I'm of Paul. Well, I'm a Cephas guy. I think, I think Cephas really had it figured out when he was teaching. No, I'm an Apollos guy. Even the people that said I'm of Christ, you would think that's the right answer, right? We grow up in church. Jesus is always the right answer. He says, no, you guys are wrong too because even though you're saying Jesus, you're still in a faction. You're never right if you're divided. Now, Paul could have let his own ego be fed here, right? Because he was one of the guys that they were grouping up. I'm of Paul. Heck, yeah, you're of Paul. Good job. No, he doesn't let it feed his own ego. And there's, there's some things in, in, in the church today where there's some personalities. There's a rock star mentality where guys' egos are being fed. And guys are putting their personality even above the church and bigger than the church. Paul refused to do that. Paul said, was I crucified for you? Were you baptized in my name? No. So don't say you're of me. So he addresses unity in three ways here in verse 10. He says, now I exhort you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? When you add the name of the Lord Jesus to your exhortation, it tells you that it's a pretty serious exhortation. He's trying to bring some power behind his exhortation right here. First, he says that you all agree. And the first thing I want to talk about is agreement. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we agree on 100% of things. The actual translation of the Greek where it says that you would all agree is actually that you would all speak the same things. That you would all speak the same things. So what would unity look like if as a church, when somebody said, hey, what's your church all about, that we would all speak the same things? So this got me thinking about our mission statement. So back in January, we had a strategic planning meeting, and we got together and we crafted a a new mission statement and it's a paragraph, and it's an awesome paragraph. We spent a bunch of time tweaking it and and changing the wording just to get it to say exactly what we wanted it to say. We got key words in there, and when we were done, we were like, yes, this paragraph really expresses the heart of our church. Now, 10 months later, there is not a single person in this church that can tell me what that paragraph says. Me included, okay? Nobody can. Why is that? Well, number one, the paragraph is really hard to memorize. And number two, because we haven't made that paragraph the focus of how we're actually doing ministry. So as the board and as the executive team, we began to look at what if we crafted a mission statement that was super easy to memorize and that perfectly described how we were doing ministry Then everybody in the church could memorize it, and we would all be speaking the same thing. So we think we have that, and we're going to unleash it. We're going to launch it in January. So that's a little cliffhanger for you. Keep you sticking around till at least January to see what I'm talking about. We're going to launch a new mission statement so that we can all speak the same things. The next thing he says in verse 10 is that there would be no divisions among you. So he says we need to eliminate divisions. Here's the thing, that word division, the Greek word is also used for breaches, such as a breach in your fishing nets, so that um, if you've got a hole in your fishing net, the fish are getting through. Or it could also refer to tears, such as tears in your clothing. So if we think about our clothing being torn... Think about why do we wear clothing? All right, well, first off, we wear clothing to cover up our private stuffs, right? So we we don't want anybody seeing that. So we wear clothing to cover it up. So if there's a rip in my clothing, there's a chance that maybe my private stuff is exposed. Somebody's going to see my underwear because I got a rip in my clothes. Now, can we talk about fashion for a second? Am I the only one that thinks it's crazy now that fashion is actually dictating that everybody's jeans come ripped already so you can't see their underwear? I mean, come on, really? When I was a kid, if I had a hole in my jeans, it was embarrassing. And we couldn't afford new ones, so my mom would patch it, and that was even worse. Now you got one of those denim patches on your jeans. Now people are paying big money to have somebody else rip their jeans to shreds so they can walk around with their stuff exposed. All right, let me get back on track. Okay. Also, we wear clothing to protect us from the environment. So we wear clothing to keep us dry when it's pouring outside, or to keep us warm when it's cold outside, somewhere else in the world, not here. But uh, so if you have a rip in your clothing, you're now exposed to the elements. And so Paul said, Let there be no divisions among you. Because if there's divisions, if there's breaches and tears, then the church is exposed. Then the church is vulnerable. And he says, We need to eliminate those divisions. And finally, he says this He says, That you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgments. To be made complete, other translations say to be united. Others say to be made whole. But the Greek word that is used there means to restore. It's the same word that's used for mending your fishing nets. You want to mend your nets so that the fish don't get through. You cast your nets out and you think you're catching fish, but the fish are slipping through. The people you wanted to reach for Jesus, you're not reaching. People come into your church and you want to disciple them, but they slip through and disappear and you never see them in church anymore. He says, make your nets whole. Mend your nets. Be united. United in what? In mind and in judgment. That means in thoughts and in actions. That we would come together and be made whole in the way we think, and the way we walk this thing out, that we would be in alignment, moving forward together. I don't have time to read the whole story out of the Bible, but in the book of Numbers, if you remember your Jewish history, Moses had led God's people out of slavery in Egypt They had established themselves as a nation and the wilderness. And now it was time to cross into the promised land to go conquer Canaan so that they could establish their homeland that God had promised them. And when it was time to cross over, Moses commissioned 12 spies to go spy out the land in advance so they knew what they were getting into. And he gave them a very specific commission. He said, I want you to spy out the agriculture What's the, what's the fruit like? What's, what's the cattle like? I want you to spy out the terrain. What's the land like? Is it hilly? Is it rocky? I want you to spy out the cities. Are the cities fortified? Are there defenses? I want you to spy out the people. How are their armies? What do the people look like? But here's the thing. He only commissioned them to report on the what, not on the if. They were supposed to report on what the land looked like, not If they were supposed to go into the land that wasn't their authority that wasn't their job to report on but when they came back 10 out of the 12 spies reported on what they saw and then said the cities are too big the walls are too thick the people are too giants we can't go and the Bible called it an evil report or some translations called it a bad report it wasn't a bad report because it was false. Everything they said was true. Everything they said about the fruit, the agriculture, the cities, the armies, everything they said was true. It wasn't an evil report because it was false. It was an evil report because it took people away from being in alignment with God's plan. God said to go, and their report was, no, we shouldn't. And it sets up one of the saddest moments in the history of God's people, Because the people began weeping and wailing. Oh, we're going to go into this land and they're going to kill us. They're going to kill our wives. They're going to kill our children. It would be better if we just died here in the wilderness. And that was one of those moments where it was like, you know, you should probably be careful what you pray for. Because God's answer at the end of Numbers chapter 14 was, okay, if that's what you're crying out for, that's what you get. Every single one of you is going to die in the wilderness. And what happened is movement stopped. They had moved out of Egypt. From Egypt, they had moved towards Canaan, and now they were ready to move into Canaan. But the moment that there was conflict, the moment that unity stopped, the moment they were no longer in alignment with what God was doing, movement stopped. And nobody went into the promised land. I gave you five C's a couple of weeks ago, the five C's that stop movement. Here's a sixth one, conflict. Conflict stopped their movement, and nobody got to go. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back today. I want to read to you an excerpt from a speech made by Abraham Lincoln. This speech was delivered on June sixteenth, 1858. This was at the Republican Convention for the state of Illinois. And Abraham Lincoln had just been selected to run for US Senator to represent the state of Illinois on the Republican ticket. He was gonna run against a Democrat named Stephen Douglas. And on this night of the Republican Convention, Abraham Lincoln got up and he gave his acceptance speech. Now his acceptance speech was radical. It was ahead of the times. It was too soon. In fact, political analysts say that he lost that election for senator because of this speech. Stephen Douglas won the election and became the senator. However, those same analysts say that even though this speech lost him the election for senator, this speech is what launched him into two years later becoming our president. He was just ahead of the times when he gave this speech. What was the speech all about? Well, at this time in U.S. history, as the fight was happening over slavery, they had made the policy to say every state can decide whether it's going to be a slave state or not. So they'd already drawn the line between north and south and the North had already abolished slavery, and the South kept it. But they said every new state that enters the Union can decide for themselves whether they're going to choose slavery or not, regardless of whether that new state was in the North or that new state was in the South. And Stephen Douglas supported that policy. So this is what Abraham Lincoln had to say about that policy, and he spoke with a prophetic voice on this night. He said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing. Or all the other, either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of ultimate extinction, or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. Abraham Lincoln spoke prophetically and said, This great nation, the United States of America, cannot stand divided. And sure enough, just a few short years after this speech, what began to happen? The Union began to dissolve as states ceded out of the Union because they wanted to just be represented by those that, that supported slavery. And that set off a civil war. The end result of that civil war is that we all learned that the only way that we could stand as a nation is that we would stand united and that we would be in unity together. Where did he get that phrase from, a house divided against itself cannot stand? He got it from Jesus. Jesus actually spoke it in all three of the synoptic gospels, but if we look in Matthew, Jesus had just cast a demon out of a man. And the Pharisees said, you're casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus is like, are you kidding? Why would Satan cast out his own demons? And he said, every kingdom that is divided shall be laid waste. And a house divided cannot stand. That's Matthew 12, 25. And then in verse 30, a few sentences later, he says this. He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus was a pretty black and white kind of dude. He didn't leave a whole lot of gray area. He said, you're either with me or you're against me. You're either gathering, which is promoting unity, or you're scattering, which is promoting division. You're doing one or the other. You're never complacent somewhere in the middle. Will you guys stand with me today? If this powerful nation could not stand divided, then I do not believe that any church in this nation can stand divided either. I believe that God has called us to do something. And I am asking the church to move in alignment. Move in alignment with what, Pastor? With the vision of doing discipleship through small group community. Doing discipleship through small group community. You say, why does that have to be the vision that we align behind? Well, number one, it's biblical. It's how the Bible told us to do it. And that right there should be enough reason alone. But the second reason is because the board and the executive staff have been praying about it, and this is what God has told us. And if you need a third reason, it's because empirical data proves that it's the best way for a church to grow in discipleship is discipleship through small group community. And I am calling us together as a church to move in unity, move in fulfilling the great commission, move together in doing exactly what God has called us to do, move together in what God is saying right now, move together so that the world will know that God has sent Jesus and that he loves us and that Jesus is truly the Savior. To do that, we've got to speak the same things. We've got to purposefully eliminate divisions, breaches in our garments. We don't want people seeing our britches, so we need to eliminate division in the church. And that we need to come together and be made whole together and have there be restoration together. God, I just ask right now that you would begin to speak to each of our hearts. We open ourselves up to you, God, and I just pray that right now this would be a moment of you just exposing anything that our hearts that need to be exposed, not exposing them in some public shameful way that we're embarrassed, but just exposing them to each one of us individually so that we can do something about it. Would you search our hearts right now God, would you be brutally honest with us right now? If there is anything in our hearts, God, that is speaking against unity, if there is anything in our hearts that is causing dissension, if there is anything in our hearts that has caused us to be factional and to choose to say, I'm a part of one group in the church, if there is any hurt or wound that has caused us to separate and divide within the church, oh, if there is any negativity Any evil report, even if the report is true, but if the report is calling people out of alignment. If there is anything, God, would you reveal it to our hearts right now? Would you speak to us, God? Even if we're doing good in 95% of the areas, God, would you show us the 5% we're not? Because we want to eliminate that too. Jesus, would you convict us of gossip? Would you convict us of backbiting? Would you convict us of passive-aggressive behavior? Would you show us those things, God? Would you show us, Lord? And this is just what I believe will happen right now. We're just going to sing a song here as we finish the ministry time today. And as we sing this song, which we're going to cry out on God to pour out the Holy Spirit. As we sing the song, whatever it is that God is revealing to you, I want to encourage you to just repent of it. However you need to do that, whether that's a silent whisper right now between you and God, whether that's coming forward and kneeling at the altar, whether that's lifting up your hands, whatever you need to do right now to repent of whatever God shows you, let's repent. And I just believe that as we repent... There's going to be a sacred moment of unity that's going to happen. And it's going to open the door for God to pour out His Spirit. And it's going to begin a, a movement for our church. I believe it's going to happen right now. As God reveals, it just repents. And let's begin to move together.